This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, and we're continuing our session talking about your medications, treatments, benefits, and risks. And a few weeks ago, we talked about adverse drug events. Uh, specifically adverse drug events in kids, and there is a significant amount of kids that do have adverse drug events. About medications in kids and how kids are not just little adults, at least when it comes to medications. Our presenter today is Dr. Sarah Scarpace-Lucas, who is an assistant associate clinical professor of pharmacy and a pediatric clinical pharmacist here at UCSF. She comes to us from University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she completed her uh, pharmacy uh, degree, and she completed a pharmacy residency in the St. Louis Children's Hospital in 2001. She practices here at the UCSF Children's Hospital, where she's the PGY2 Pediatric Residency Program Director. She's our senior uh, supervisor, and she precepts students and residents and cares for pediatric patients. Dr. Sarah Scarpes-Lucas. All right, well, welcome, everyone. Um, of course, if you think of any questions, anything that comes up throughout the lecture, just raise your hand. Um, it, I'd be happy to talk, talk uh, anytime. So what we're going to talk about today, we have a few different objectives. The first one we're going to look at is describing the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamic differences that's associated with pregnancy and lactation and how these affect medication distribution. To discuss the metabolic differences with neonatal patients as compared to pediatric patients and adult patients. Review appropriate dosing in pediatric patients to identify issues with medication administration in children and potential solutions, and finally, understand the reasoning behind why medication problems are greater in children and identify safe practice recommendations. So first, we're going to start with pregnancy and lactation. Now, I bet you didn't think you're going to come to a lecture that we're actually going to talk about pregnancy and lactation, but I thought it was an important part because babies exist, too, in utero, and we're actually, uh, pharmacists are quite involved also when we have uh, patients who are pregnant and actually in lactating. So overall, when we look at prescription use in pregnancy, nearly 60, will, 60 million women in the U.S. are of childbearing age. One in 10 uh, women get pregnant each year, and approximately 64% of those, uh, 64% end up taking some type of prescription drug. Literature shows that on average, a pregnant woman will receive between about three to five prescriptions during their pregnancy. What are the physiologic, physiologic changes in pregnancy? So there's an increase in total body weight and body fat. What that means is that we have an increase in volume distribution for fat-soluble drugs. There's also a delayed in gastric emptying time. This is due to the effects of progesterone. What this means for us in drugs is that there could be a prolonged absorption time for certain, certain medications. We have an increase in plasma volume by about 30 to 50%, also decreases in plasma albumin. All of these lead to actually larger volumes of distribution in pregnant patients. This can actually cause a dilutional effect and dilute out the drugs that we're trying to give to, to pregnant patients. There's an increase in glomerular uh, filtration rate, so here we're dealing with kidney function, and also an organ blood flow along with hepatic enzyme activity. And all of these sometimes are revved up, meaning by we sometimes the drug is actually eaten up a little bit faster than usual. So a pregnant person could be exposed to actually less drug overall because they've, it's been diluted out and it gets eaten up faster. So we have very different kinetics 
in a pregnant patient compared to an average adult. So pharmacologically, what do we need to consider? We're actually treating two different individuals. So we're looking at mom and we're looking at baby. Both of those have different pharmacokinetics and different pharmacodynamics. Obviously, they could be exposed to both prescription and non-prescription drugs. Each of those have their own uh, kinetic differences. So in all cases, we need to look at risk versus benefit. Is it actually okay when we treat the mom? We could be very well treating the baby. And we need to make sure that whatever we're treating the mom, we want to make sure we're treating her effectively, but yet not hurt the fetus. So what are the real pharmacologic uh, considerations that we need to think about in pregnancy and placental transfer? It's really dealing with what, which of the medicines that actually don't transfer through. Uh, it's medicines that have a high molecular weight, ones that are ionized, ones that are hydrophilic, those are all the particular medicines that are the safer medicines. Um, there's, um, I'll show next with you, I'll share with you, how do we as practitioners, how do we tell what's the right thing to do? So the next slide is looking at, this is what's available to practitioners, uh, both pharmacists, nurses, uh, physicians. These are the pregnancy risk categories. So we have a few different categories here. We have the safest to the non-safe. As you, as you can guess, X is going to be the least safe, okay? So this is where we have teratogenicity has been showing. Um, this is what we contraindicated. We do not want to give pregnant folks any of these medicines. Now, we like to give people category A. Category A is the safest. That means we have studied it really well in pregnancy. Now, as you can guess, there are very few medicines in category A because how many people are exposing themselves and deciding to go get studied while they're pregnant? Often those studies occur because someone's pregnant and has been exposed to that medicine. What's realistically, what's, what, what realistically is out there for most medicines is really class C here. What that's saying is that animal studies have shown some adverse effects to the fetus. However, we have no real randomized controlled studies that have shown anything in, in pregnant women. So it really comes down to risk versus benefit. Uh, do we need to treat that mom? Uh, sometimes we're dealing with seizure situations, seizure therapy medicines. It may be more important to treat the mom, and we have to look at what's the safest medicine that we can use for, for the baby in those situations. Next we might look at, now the baby's out. Are we free? Is everything easy now? Well, we have actually lactation concerns too. Um, most of the issues that come with when we have lactating women, they're dealing with um, medicines that, come, that transfer through is, dealing, is usually by passive diffusion. The medicines that will transfer through very easily are medicines that are non-ionized, that are non-protein bound, and have a very low molecular weight. Those are the key medicines that go through very easily. The other part that comes along with that is how much mom is exposing the, the child. So obviously the more that's in mom, the more the baby's going to see. So those are the pieces that we're going to, that we need to look at when we pick out drugs. Similar to the to pregnancy, there's also a lactation chart that helps guide practitioners as to what are the safest medicines that we can give to a uh, lactating uh, patient. So here we have L1 through L5. L1, again, is the safest, while L5 is considered to be contraindicated. Again, we don't have a lot of L1 drugs. Many of our drugs, again, hit L3, which is moderately safe. We don't have a lot of studies in breastfeeding. Again, people don't decide to sign themselves up just to check it out when they're breastfeeding to see if it's going to work. So again, it's benefit versus risk. So a lot of our therapies, 
and tend to be um, in that middle range. So how do we minimize the risk to an infant? Really avoiding drug off course is possible, right? There's situations that's not going to be possible though. Using topical therapies, those are going to be certainly safer. The key point is though, safety in pregnancy does not equal safety in breastfeeding. So you might say that that was a safe drug that they took for nine months, but once they get out and the baby's now there, it's actually not a safe drug sometimes anymore because it actually transfers very easily to the baby. The ideal medicine that we'd like to give mom would be one with a short half-life, one that by chance we actually have good studies in kids. So if we know about how it works in a child, then we can, are, we can we have better extrapolation of data to tell what will happen if that child is exposed to the medicine. Ones that have poor oral absorption, ones that have low lipid solubility. Those are going to be the best ones if you had to pick out a drug. Next question would be is when do you give a drug if you have to, right? If we have to make a recommendation, when's the best time? So if it's a single daily dose drug, you only give it one time a day, it's best to give it prior to the longest sleep interval. So maybe when babies start to sleep a little longer overnight, giving it right, right, at, right uh, prior to that time so the less, less chance that they're going to wake up and, and feed overnight. Also, if we have to, if we have to drug that's, that's uh, given multiple times a day, then we want to have them feed right before the dose because then you get the lowest serum concentrations and lowest uh, lactation, milk concentrations. Um, and there's also the pump and dump method. You may have heard of this. This is the theory that it's, such, it's a bad enough medicine that we do not want mom to give it, or it's high enough, high enough concentrations like they've taken it and it's been a, maybe an hour or two when it's going to be the highest concentrations in the body, we would tell the mom to pump and get rid of that milk. So next we're going to go on to the kids. We're going to go on to neonates and infants, looking at their drug distribution, disposition and dosing. So in order to talk about the neonatal part, we need to first actually get some definitions down. So first we're talking about what is gestational age. So gestational age is the weeks from the first, from the first day of the mother's last menstrual period really is saying the number of days in utero. So when they say you are 20 weeks gestation or 24 weeks gestation, that means, that means you're six months pregnant, okay? Uh, postnatal age. This is saying chronological age since birth. So you are two days old. Uh, a neonate is officially one month after, up to one month after birth. A premature neonate is considered to be less than 36 weeks of gestational age. An infant is one month to two years. In some references, you'll actually see one month to one year. The official FDA labeling references actually goes up to two years, um, and that's why I've included it here. And two years in particular... Um, is what actually drugs are approved upon. So that's the reason why I, I use that as our, as our guideline today. A child is 2 years to 12 years. Adolescents are 12 years to 21 years. And adults are greater than 18. You see there's a little gray area here between adolescents and adults, the 18 to 21-year-old range. Um, that is you know, listed always like this. And so they are considered kind of a gray area, honestly. Um, because sometimes you, sometimes at that age group, we end up calculating um, sometimes renal function or dosing. We look at it in both pediatric way and we look at it in an adult way. And you end up taking sometimes the more conservative approach depending on that because they fit in that gray area. You will take the safest approach for that, for that patient. 
Now, when we look at neonates specifically, they have even further differentiation or, and, and definitions. So there's normal birth weight neonates, who are these are all the guys who are born a little early. Low birth weight, so ones that are less than 2.5 kilo, uh, kilos or, or 2,500 grams. Um, we put, I put the conversions there for you, too, because most of you guys are thinking in, in pounds. Um, you know, it's, it gets pretty small. Less than one pound already is a low birth weight, very low birth weight. This is less than 1,500 grams, so less than 0.68 pounds. And then extremely low birth weight, less than 0.45 pounds, or less than 1,000 grams. These are very, very small babies. Some of them, when you look at them, they're, they're so small. They're the size of your hand when you go see them. They're just amazingly small. These pictures actually are pretty representative of kind of the extremely low, low, and uh, extremely low, very low, and, and low, um, just how small they really are. And you can see this little guy down here. Just, it's, they're such a small little, little, little people that we need to, we give medicines to all the time, and we need to make sure that, these, that they're safe. So the question is, what's the survival rate of some of these young children? So when they're born at approximately, so what can we uh, save at this time? So we can save babies down at 24 weeks or so, in some hospitals down to 23 weeks, um, meaning by about six months of life, you can save a baby. They have about, at that age, they have about a 50% mortality. Um, it gets better as you get older, of course. Every week they can stay in is better for that baby. So to talk about a neonate, we need to talk about um, a lot of the pharmacokinetic properties that happen during development. These include both absorption, distribution, metabolism, and of course elimination. So first let's look at absorption. So the skin is made up of three layers. We have the epidermis, the dermis, and your subcutaneous tissue. The stratum corneum, which is your outer layer of your epidermis, really provides your main barrier functions. And that's what we're really looking at when we put creams on people. We're looking at how thick that barrier function is to protect them. The main factors that affect your percutaneous drug absorption is your, really your degree of skin hydration, your thickness of that stratum corneum, and your body surface area to weight ratio. Skin hydration is considered to be is much higher in your neonate. That, what that means is if we put something on, you're going to get more absorbed than compared to somebody who's, who's smaller or who's older. When we look at actually a premature baby, um, when they come out, their stratum corneum is much thinner, obviously. Their skin is not developed yet. But one good thing about premature infants, within three weeks, they actually have an accelerated uh, skin development phase. So they can actually get up to to term baby skin or um, by about three weeks, even if they're born very premature. That helps protect them, clearly. Also, when we look at the body surface area to weight ratio, they are a much higher body surface area in the neonatal phase as compared to their weight. What that means is if we put on an equal amount of, let's say, a lotion or a cream onto somebody, we put on this amount, that's maybe taking up the whole body, right, on a small baby, versus I put that on you, okay? That's obviously going to affect you very differently. This little baby's got that higher skin absorption. They're going to absorb a ton more, and that can put them at higher risk for toxicity. When we look at their muscle or sub-Q tissue, it's generally recommended to avoid uh, many injections in the premature baby because they don't have a lot of sub-Q tissue or a lot of muscle mass, um, and they have very poor... Um, very poor blood flow or circulation um, that's going to those muscles. So it's not recommended to give, um, to give a lot of, 
a lot of uh, injectable type products. Now, when we get older babies, they have a lot more fat that's laid down, and clearly we can give vaccines or things like that, uh, certainly appropriately. When we look at absorption, the majority of drugs that we give orally are, are absorbed uh, by passive diffusion by the GI lumen in your small intestine. The two main factors that affect that rate and extent of absorption include both your pH of your gastric intestinal contents and your gastric motility. So in those first couple weeks of life, your gastric acid production is actually very much decreased. What that will cause is it'll cause you to be able to absorb things that we give you in our weak bases much more in weak acids, things like uh, amoxicillin or ampicillins would be absorbed much, uh, much worse. Um, however, the key is in this age group, you don't give a lot of little babies a lot of oral medicines. Uh, so that's one advantage for them. And then by the time they get to be about two weeks, their gastric acid uh, secretions have kicked in, and they start to basically bring the pH down to what you and I have in a pH in your stomach. When we look at gastric emptying in your intestinal peristalsis, their gastric emptying time is much lower. Um, they have a reduced gastric emptying time um, along with that increased gastric pH and decreased pancreatic enzyme function, which means that absorption of medicines are going to be delayed in this age group. When we look at rectal, the rectal route of absorption, really at this age, there's no real differences actually between adults and children. So this is an acceptable alternative for giving medicines. If we can't give medicines down the oral route, we can certainly give it down the rectal route. That is, that is certainly an option. Um, if you think of Tylenol, that's a very common medicine that could be given rectally at this, in this age group. When we look next at distribution, neonates tend to have an increased extracellular and total body water. As you can see from this graph over here, we see at the neonate who's 24 weeks, they have approximately 60% of extracellular water. This decreases down to about 40% by birth then 25% by three months, and then continues to move down to adult values by 10 to 15% by teenage years. Why that really matters is that water-soluble drugs distribute into the extracellular space. So if we give water-soluble drugs to a neonatal patient or even infant, they're going to, they're going to distribute a lot more in a neonatal patient as compared to an older patient. In addition, when we look at plasma proteins, these tend to be decreased also in neonates. This, will, this means that drugs that are highly protein-bound, there's going to be a lot more free drug out there than drugs that are properly bound to the proteins, meaning by free drug is going to lead to more therapeutic effects and more potential toxicity. So another, another danger. The blood-brain barrier, this is one of our uh, barrier method, barriers to, um, to getting toxicity into your brain. Um, this is actually developed as, um, as a baby is growing. It's actually complete at full adult levels by 20 weeks of gestation. So next to the slide, I'll show this. I'm going to come back to this again when we get to elimination. But this is really dealing with kind of putting it in perspective of volume and distribution. So we look at our baby here. It's on the left and our adult patient. They kind of really are a bag of water. Okay, it's a good example of really what a baby is. So when we think, and I give, if, if I put in 10 drops of red food dye, which is my drug, into each of these bags, which one's going to be darker? Do we think the bag on the left or the bag on the right? Should be bag on the right, right? 
logically makes sense. So if you think of it as in that's a drug. So in order to make this this bag the same color as this bag, we're going to need to give more drug to some of these neonatal patients to make them have the same therapeutic effect. So that's kind of what the real issue is with our volume distribution, especially with water-soluble drugs. So you need to give more drug. Now, it doesn't mean I give more drug more often. It does mean I give more drug, okay? We're going to get back to this again when we get to elimination shortly. Okay, so next we look at metabolism. Metabolism in the liver is dealing with both phase one reactions and phase two reactions. Phase one reactions are including both oxidation and hydrolysis and dealkylation. In phase two reactions, we've got acetylation, glucuronidation, sulfonation, and methylation. Now, I'm not going to go into the true details of each one of these. However, you can tell that it takes time to get to mature levels. It takes nearly six months to 12 months for each of these different systems to be full at full effects. So what that means to you and what it means to the baby is that they are going to metabolize drugs slower than an, adult, than an older child or an adult patient. It means that drug's going to get out of the body slower. It means we need to give that drug less frequently to be safe for this patient. Now when we look at renal elimination, which is, uh, which is how we uh, get the medicine out through the kidneys, we look at nephrogenesis first, which is how, how the kidneys developed. So it starts at nine weeks of gestation, and it's complete by 36 weeks of gestation. Really, before 34 weeks, your GFR, or your glomerular filtration rate, which is dealing with your kidney function, is very slow, is not, is not moving very fast. Between 34 and 36 weeks, we actually have a big kick up in, in filtration rate up to term levels. So when that baby's born, it's pretty much at full term. Overall, after, after a baby's born, it increases over the next maybe two months or so, and then it finally reaches adult levels of full kidney function by about a year of age. Uh, tubular functioning, tubular secretion, again, similarly takes about 6 to 12 months for full effects. What the key element here is very similar to our hepatic metabolism. It takes up to a year for full kidney function to be at adult levels. So that means, again, that through that first year of life, we need to be dosing, dosing drugs appropriately and at less frequent levels, less frequent intervals, to be safe for the patients. How do we tell? How does a practitioner make sure what we're giving a patient is correct? One of the functions we have to tell this to, to help us determine is your serum creatinine. It's a little misleading, though, actually, when you're born. Right away, in that first week of life, it actually reflects mom's serum creatinine. So if mom's serum creatinine is high, they're high too. It's just the key is over that first week to two weeks, you need to watch the serum creatinine decrease down to normal levels. We get concerned as practitioners when I see that serum creatinine maybe start at 0.8, like a normal adult perhaps, and then it goes 0.9, 1.2, 1.4. Then we know that that baby actually has, in addition to what they're seeing from moms, they actually have their own renal dysfunction also that we need to further adjust the medicines. Urine output is another variable that we use to help determine our kidney function. I put down the different numbers here for you. Um, normal, of normal urine output that we have for kids, for preschoolers, for school-age children, and then what's minimal. What is the red flag that we need to look at in order to make sure what's safe 
uh, if, we're, if we're looking at medicines. These are some of our first indicators, especially in a child. Their serum creatinine tends to lag a little bit behind when we have renal dysfunction, that you'll see your urine output drop off first. So these are one of our main indicators we use in children in determining their kidney function. This particular slide is talking to you about your normal serum creatinine ranges. These are listed out for you in variants for both our preterm infants all the way up to our term neonates. So that's what we expect the serum creatinine to be. And then as you get bigger again, up to an adult size, your serum creatinine increases again, and that's okay. But these are what our normal reference ranges are, and we use this to help, help in calculating serum creatinine for, for patients or calculating your renal function in patients. So measurement of renal function, as we talked about, urine output certainly is one, your BUN and serum creatinine, your GFR, which is the most precise. In some cases, actually, uh, for patients who are receiving chemotherapy that it's very nephrotoxic or renal toxic, we will actually have them do a, uh, a special GFR that's actually nuclear calculated because we need to know, other than just an estimate that we can calculate, we need to know with certainty exactly what their kidney function is because that chemotherapy is so nephrotoxic and we need to make sure we adjust the chemo appropriately. It would not be something we would do on everyone. That's, it's, too, it's too demanding and too difficult to do, but it would be, it's appropriate in certain situations. Uh, the Schwartz equation, which is, something, which is the equation that we use to determine kidney function, it's a calculated equation. What you use in it, we use a, a K value, which is a, a constant, an age-dependent constant, which is all listed here, along with your patient's height and their <coughs> serum creatinine. And we use all of those to help determine your kidney function in a, in a pediatric patient. What's the CL? Uh, CL is your creatinine clearance. That's just the official equation for it. So we'll go back to our bags of water, okay? So these are our, our, our kids again. We have one child and we have one adult. So again, when we think of our, we've added in our red food dye and we got it in there. Now we think of what goes on in a, in a pediatric patient and how, what's the difference in their kidneys. So in a kidney here, in a baby, I'm going to cut this bag just at this little corner and it's just going to stream out very slowly. That's reflective of both their kidney and their immature uh, uh, liver function of how long it takes for medicines to get out. If I even make the same cut right here, if I can make a cut right here, that water is going to drain out very fast. That's much more reflective of an adult kidney function because everything is going to come out much faster and you can dose things much more frequently. Okay, so moving on, we're going to start talking about drug disposition disposition and dosing in our children and adolescent patients. So what is the appropriate dosing we should be using in pediatric patients? We got a lot of different choices. So milligram per kilo per day, milligram per kilo per dose, those are the most common choices that we use in pediatrics. Milligram per meter squared, that is used most commonly in chemotherapy agents. Um, it is not used, though, in a neonate or infant for the reasons we talked about before. They have a much higher body, sur body surface area to weight ratio, and if I use that, I might actually give too much drug. So we use actually a milligram per kilo when they're less than maybe 10 to 12 kilos, and then over that, we will use milligram per meter squared, and that does also count for adults also. Age-dependent dosing. There are a few drugs that are age-dependent, not milligram per kilo-dependent. Uh, 
And then finally, pharmacokinetic monitoring. That's very specific monitoring. So things that we can measure serum drug levels out of the body, that we're going to actually poke the child, take a blood level, and measure it, and use that pharmacokinetics to help model an appropriate dose for the patient. Again, you wouldn't want to do that for everything, but it's an appropriate type, uh, appropriate for certain medicines. This is the equation for calculating body surface area. Um, it's it factors in your height, your weight, um, and then divided by 3,600 and a square root of that. My next example is really kind of going into the chemotherapy of why we don't want to use it in a very young patient. So here's our example child of an an eight-month-old who is receiving chemotherapy. This could be a child maybe with retinoblastoma, maybe a patient with ALL or leukemia. So they have their nine kilos. I've done your calculation for you. Their height is 70 centimeters. Their body surface area is 0.42. So what that comes out to be, we have a dosing of a particular chemotherapy agent of 500 milligram per meter squared. What they, how the directions usually are listed in these, in these protocols is if you're over 12 kilos, you're going to get the metered square dosing, or you're going to get a milligram per kilo dosing if you're less than 12 kilos. So if I did the body surface area dosing, I do 500 times 0.42, I get 210 milligrams I would give that, that child. If I do a weight-based dosing method, I get 16.6 times 9 is 149 milligrams, a significant difference doesn't seem like too significant. You might say, well, that's, you know, 50 milligrams, 60 milligrams, but 60 milligrams of a chemotherapy agent when that's almost a, a, a third of the dose, that's a big deal. That actually could cause significant toxicity in a patient. This is the reason why body surface area method is inappropriate in patients who are less than 10 to 12 kilos, or body, body surface area method is inappropriate. So dosing intervals in pediatric patients could also be different in children and adolescents because some medicines are eliminated more rapidly than adults. In these instances, we actually have to have shorter dosing intervals. Because biological functions change throughout childhood and adolescence, it may be necessary actually to adjust dosages frequently, especially for medicines that treat chronic disease states like seizure therapies. That potentially could be one that that will change fairly frequently. Disease states that also affect dosing in pediatric and adolescent patients can also affect their dosing too, including if we look at like hepatic or renal impairment. So similar to neonate, who's not able to clear those medicines as fast, if we have an older patient who has a bad liver or has a poor kidney, they also can't clear those medicines. So we need to make appropriate dosing adjustments to account for those those, uh, dysfunctions. Gastrointestinal disease, so patients who might have celiac disease or gastroenteritis, that may affect their drug absorption. They may not be able to absorb like a normal patient, and that, will, that potentially can affect either drug levels that we, might, that we might measure or may affect the entire drug efficacy. When we look at patients who have cystic fibrosis or cancer, sometimes those patients we actually have to give larger doses to because their volume of distribution is either larger or they actually metabolize drugs faster. So we end up giving quite a bit different drug doses to, these, to our cystic fibrosis patients or cancer patients. So next, we're going to go on to medication administration issues in pediatric patients. So what is our preferred dosage form for a patient, for a pediatric patient? Really, realistically, it's probably liquids or maybe chewable tablets. 
If you can't swallow chewable tablets, we need to think, well, first, when can they swallow chewable tablets? What do we think? Can kids swallow them at three years of, old, three years of age? Probably not. You know, we get to five or six or eight or ten. There's always a variance. I can tell you there's going to be some kids. I have some uh, oncology patients or chemotherapy patients who I could have a four-year-old. He, he can swallow tablets a ton better than a teenager. I, I bring him in sometimes to teach some of these teenagers of how to swallow a tablet because it's amazing to see how quickly they learn. Um, however, on average, usually you think about five or six is kind of the average age where kids learn how to swallow a tablet. So what do we do if you can't? What, what, what's out there, right? Because not every tablet comes in, not everything comes in a tablet form that we could say, you just give a half a tablet. That, that'll be fine for you, okay? It just doesn't work like that. Um, if it does by chance work that we can give the full tablet and the tablet is okay to crush, we can crush tablets, okay? Some, not all tablets are okay like that. So extended release tablets. If you crush an extended release tablet, you destroy the matrix of that tablet and you actually make it not effective anymore. You might make it give all the medicine at once. You might just destroy the whole medicine. There's lots of reasons why you, you need to check that out before, doing, before ever crushing a tablet. But if it's been deemed that that tablet's okay, what we'll do is we'll crush tablets, we'll put them on soft foods like applesauce, pudding. You want foods that have good, strong flavors that cover up medicines. So again, chocolate, strong flavors like that is a better flavor than maybe an, a different type of pudding like um, vanilla pudding. So chocolate's a better choice. Peanut butter, very good choice. Very good cover-up agent. Um, other things we do, jam or jelly. Jam is actually a preferred agent over jelly because jam has little little uh, seeds in it. Seeds are, cover up pill fragments well. So if you give that, it's a nice sweet thing, and we can put it on there, and they'll take a mouthful all at once. And what you can sometimes you have to bargain with them. You might say, I'm going to give you one bite of this, and then you get a bite of ice cream. You know, you have to you have to be you have to be imaginative. When you're, when you're working with a five-year-old or a four-year-old or a three-year-old because they play, they play the game too, and then the mouth will close, and then there's no more in if you're trying to, if you're trying to get, it back, get it in. Other things we can do, opening capsules. So sometimes some medicines out there have, uh, they're okay to be given, and you open up the capsule, again, put it on that soft food, and you put it in there, and they'll, and they'll eat it as one swallow. You have to teach them, though, they can't crunch it and, and break up those break up sometimes those beads. Sometimes you can, but often not. It has to be a quick swallow. Chewable tablets, of course, are preferred, but they don't exist for a lot of things. Um, solutions and suspensions. That would be the best choice, right? Why don't we just take everything and dump it in some, dump it in some cherry syrup? Right? That would be a good choice. However, we don't have stability to do that. Um, a lot of those suspensions, they need to go through special stability testing that they're okay at this concentration. Some come as very concentrated, some come as very dilute. And that means a, patient, a child, if anyone remembers, if anyone's had to give any medicines to children anytime recently, if anyone remembers Tylenol was a big issue out in the market. So there used to be a very concentrated Tylenol drops, and then there used to be a more, and there is currently a more dilute one. It's three times actually more, it was three times more concentrated. It makes a huge difference when you're trying to give a small child that much volume versus this much volume. And people, let me tell you, it is so much easier to do that concentrated one. Um, but it is gone, right? And so now we have to work with parents and how do you get down three times as much volume 
into a patient who their kid's going to spit it out. If you don't do it well, that it, drill, it comes right back out of the mouth again. It's amazing. Um, there's, there's lots of challenges to getting medicines down. Um, another challenge we have with suspensions is a lot of places don't make them anymore. They're not cost-effective, or they don't bother. Pharmacies themselves don't want to make those suspensions for us. So you need to find specialty pharmacies that will actually <coughs> compound these, these products for children. Another important piece of medication administration we need to look at, both in the outpatient and inpatient world, is your osmolality of the, of the medicine. So orally, we need medicines to be less than overall 600 milliosms uh, that we need to give in, in particular. When we, get, when we get to IV products, peripheral lines require less than 1,000 milliosms. Um, we, we have special calculations of these that we need to make sure of because the adverse effects that can occur otherwise are fairly devastating. Um, hyperosmolar oral medicines can lead to a devastating GI effect called necrotizing enterocolitis. And then when we get to an IV product, IV medicines that are given, that are too hyperosmolar, sometimes can cause intraventricular hemorrhage or brain bleeds. So these are fairly um, major issues that we need to make sure of, and this is something that a pharmacy needs to be watching on all of their medicines that they administer. There's also certain preservatives that we need to avoid because some of these are, are also, also uh, problematic for children, especially neonatal patients. One of the rules of thumbs that, thumb that we need to think of is that neonatal patients should, be, should avoid many preservatives if possible. Sorbitol using, is often used as a sweetening agent, can cause diarrhea, abdominal pain, or gas. Not terrible effects, but they don't, they're not great. The other ones, so the sodium benzoate, the benzyl alcohol, and the propylene glycol, all of those are, are preservatives that are actually used in products that we use every day. And sodium benzoate actually can displace one of your normal, normal serum proteins called bilirubin. Benzyl alcohol can cause this gasping syndrome, and neonates can cause seizures, metabolic acidosis, uh, renal or, or kidney or liver problems, or actually end up being in death. And then finally, propylene glycol has been associated with serum hyperosmolality, lactic acidosis, hypotension, arrhythmias, CNS, respiratory depression, and death also. So very, very serious side effects with these particular preservatives. So if you think of it, we'd like to give everybody oral agents. But when we have, that will be a nice healthy person, right? So sometimes people aren't so healthy, and they have to get a different, they have to get things in a different route. So, of course, what else can we give people? So we have alternative routes of administration, IM or sub-Q. So can we give everybody the same, if I give you a shot, can I give the same amount to a pediatric patient? Not necessarily. They have, there's, there's different amounts that little, muscle, little muscles can handle. So small, and that's, that's a, there's a variance depending on how old you are. There's a, a quite a bit, quite, it's well-defined of certain muscle groups can only allow a certain amount of volume added into that muscle. So we might have to give, we might have to give multiple, to give a certain vaccine if there's a dose of, we'll say, one ml. We might have to give a very small child three shots in three different muscle groups to make up that dose as compared to you, which might get one shot. So it's that big of a deal and because we can't give that same, that same amount that we give to an adult patient. 
The rectal route can be used. Um, again, it can be used from infancy on, um, and that is certainly an option we use um, if you do not have oral, uh, oral access. The nasal or buccal route, so giving it through your nose or giving it in your mouth. Those are options we have, too, for some medicines. We have some certain types of seizure medicines um, that we use to help stop seizures in an emergent situation that we can use, and we can actually, um, we have some, it can actually atomize some IV products, and it will atomize it in a fine mist that can actually go directly into your nose. And there's also, we can also squirt things into the mouth, and it gets absorbed right into your, into your cheek area and gets absorbed very quickly and works just as well as sometimes through another, another route. Very safe product, and we use, we use these quite often. Inhalation. If you think of a lot of our asthma medicines, they're all going to certainly go through the inhalation method. But what's important to know, if we give inhalers or we give nebulized medicines, you have to make sure you give the right, the right uh, spacer or face mask. So if we give a, a little baby a meter dose inhaler, we have to make sure it actually gets to the lungs where we want it to do. So if we do that with a proper face, spacer and face mask, with enough breaths, it's going to get into the lungs properly. Otherwise, what will happen is you just squirt it in there, it will end up in the back of the throat, and they'll swallow it, and it'll end up in their stomach. It will not get to the lungs at all, and it'll just cause adverse effects in the stomach. So it's important that we pick the right devices when we use these medicines. And of course, IV products. IV is certainly the easiest way if we, if we have an inpatient uh, in the hospital. However, we still need to think of these items with kids because kids can't handle as much fluid as an adult. There are fluid overload issues. We need to look at the concentrations. We need to look at how much volume we're giving a patient. And when we look at when you actually give a product through an IV, you're giving it on a pump. You have to make sure that your hospitals have the correct pumps that can deliver these very tiny rates to a pediatric or neonatal patient uh, properly. In addition, as a pharmacy side of things, we need to make sure we're delivering the right size syringe that goes with those pumps to deliver the right, the right accurate amount. So a large bore syringe is not as accurate as a very small syringe in delivering a very minute, minute uh, dose at a time. So what are some tips that we should think of for administering medications in children? So if you're trying to get an oral medicine down, really administering, using an oral syringe is a key here, okay? Squirting it between the cheek and the gum, and you want to squirt it in the, more in the back. Squirting it in the front of the mouth, they're going to learn very quickly that you just take your mouth and, and close it down, and it comes right back out. Don't put it in the front, and you don't want to squirt also in the back of the throat, right? Because that's going to cause a gag, ref gag reflex. Liquids-wise, there's a bunch of liquids that we give that are just terrible tasting. And, and, you can't, and, and I can completely understand why kids don't like them and why you have trouble giving them because they taste terrible. Um, what are other options we can do with that? So there's actually some nice products out there. I, I had a kid once who had to take a medicine for a, for a fungal infection, and he had to take it for nearly six weeks. And unfortunately, it was just an awful tasting one. And he came up, he was old enough to make a decision, and I could give him a choice of, did you want a chocolate raspberry version? Did you want a grape version? Or did you want a, a banana one? And I could give them that choice. And when you give them an option, they have a choice. He chose a chocolate raspberry and had no trouble taking that medicine because it, there's been some data on how to make that with special flavoring agents. 
some pharmacies actually offer those special agents and how we can make them to make them more palatable for kids. Another thing is trying to give them something they like afterwards. Again, the ice cream, a cookie, something. You know, you think, are you creating a bad habit? Potentially. But it's not necessarily when, if it's something that you need to get a chemotherapy agent down, well, does it matter if they get a little bit of ice cream? Probably not, right? So you have to think logically, does it, does it matter that much? When we crush tabs or open capsules, we place them on a small amount. You don't want to open up that, crush that tablet and put it on a big bowl of yogurt. That's a bad idea, because what if they don't eat all the yogurt? has to be just on a spoonful of yogurt. Just have one spoonful, then they can take the rest at a later time. Putting applesauce yogurt are options. Strong flavors are the, are the better covering agents. Peanut butter, sometimes you could ice the mouth to, to help dilute, to have, uh, cut down the taste buds. Chocolate syrup, and then using jam, of course, not jelly, as, as agents to get, to get those medicines down. All right, so next we're going to look at medication-related problems. So what are medication problems that we have in children? So adverse drug reactions, or ADRs. Now the next ones, drug interactions, therapeutic duplication, inappropriate drug selection, the subtherapeutic dosing, overdose toxicity, without indication medicines or emissions, those can all be considered as medication errors. And we're going to look at that as a separate section. So the risk of an adverse drug event is really higher in younger children. They have this increased risk because they have immature biological processes that affect your drug distribution. We have a lack of information somewhat on many of the medicines that we give in children, including our dosing, our safety, and our efficacy. And then as I talked about a little bit before, because we have to make all of our medicines, we have to make a lot of medicines, we have, to exp we have to compound these medicines, that leads every step of the way that we have to manipulate a project, product, puts you at higher risk for an error to occur. In all aspects of medication process of pediatric patients, we, need, we have calculations included. Calculations and anything that's done manually means there's a chance that you could do that calculation wrong. We have, a, we have a fairly high chance of overdose with these concentrated medicines because many of our pediatric medicines that we have to use for, for kids, they come in very concentrated forms that are adult forms. So you and I would get this one package of product, but I have to take that concentrated form, manipulate it, make it into a dilute form, and then give it out. So the chance of overdose, if I by chance didn't dilute it properly or I did it incorrectly, puts that, that pediatric patient at, at risk. We have adverse drug events that are unique to children. So classically you think of tetracyclines, where that actually causes permanent tooth staining. Or you've heard of fluoroquinolones, where it potentially can cause bone or cartilage problems. Those don't affect older people. They only affect little, little people. And so there's other drugs like that, too, that affect younger kids but don't affect older people. There's actually some drugs that affect older people and not younger people, too. Uh, conversely, every, every age group's got their own adverse uh, risks. Pharmacokinetic, pharmacokinetic issues that are related to adverse drug events are dealing with here are plasma proteins. So if we have low levels of plasma proteins, that means, again, higher levels of unbound drug, which is the free drug, which is the active drug, and that means potential for more toxicity. Again, similar to what we talked about at the neonatal phase, decreased renal function or decreased uh, 
liver function, all of these can put someone at risk. If you start to have a kidney problem and it's not noticed fast enough, that means you could keep getting drug more as often, keep on getting it often like a person who metabolizes it normally, and that puts you at very high risk for continued renal function or worse. And then, of course, increased skin permeability because patients have that greater skin hydration, They have, especially as a neonate or as an infant, and they have that greater body surface area to weight ratio. So next, let's look at medication errors. Medication errors are the most common type of medical error and cause of preventable adverse events. Officially, the definition-wise is any preventable event that occurs in the process of ordering or delivering a medication, regardless whether injury occurred or the potential for injury was present. And we found that, unfortunately, medication errors are worse, or the potential is worse, in a pediatric patient as compared to an adult patient. So what really is the extent of the problem? So what's been reported out in the literature is there's been an incidence in adults of ranging 1% to 30% of hospital admissions, or about 5% of the written orders. Now, in pediatrics, it's been shown as 1 in 6.4 written orders. In a retrospective review, when they looked at over about 50,000 records, they found that there was a significantly greater rate of medication errors that resulted in harm or death in pediatric patients as compared to adults in 30, 31% of adults versus 31% of pediatric patients versus 13% of, of adult patients. So much, much higher in peds. Now, furthermore, we look at, an, at there's a prospective study of two, two institution cohort study of approximately 1,100 pediatric patients looked at it over a six week period. And here they wanted to look at their goals of determining the rates of their medication errors, potential adverse drug events, and actual, actual drug, adverse drug events. Of course, they compared it to the literature, and they looked at why their, why their results were, whatever, were different than potentially what the literature had. They analyzed approximately you know, 11,000 orders. They found about 5.7% of medication errors. Most of those errors were dosing errors, followed by route of administration, transcription errors, and documentation errors, followed by date and frequency or administration errors. Of those, we had uh, 19%. 0.24% of adverse drug events, and they considered about 19% of those to be preventable. In the potential adverse drug events, they found that the adverse drug events affected pediatric patients almost three times more frequently than an adult patient, which is an important variable. Then when they looked at the pediatric subgroup analysis, they looked at the peds patients, they looked at the adult and the neonatal patients, they actually found that the neonates had experienced a greater percentage of potential adverse effects uh, and actually real medication errors as compared to the adult patients also. So again, our young, immature patient who has the worst kidney function, the worst worst hepatic function, they are being put at risk, at higher risk than even our older children. When we look further at the MedMarks database, they found that 2.5% of pediatric medication errors led to actual patient harm. The most common errors out there include improper dose or quantity that's ordered, an omission error, meaning by that a certain drug that they expected to be ordered was not ordered, like let's say someone who has diabetes. They need insulin. Insulin was not ordered. That is an omission error. Unauthorized or wrong drug. The wrong drug was picked. The patient got the wrong drug. And then finally a prescribing error. Maybe they got the incorrect, for some reason it was not correctly prescribed to that patient. 
So you might ask, why are children really at greater risk? So first, it's really looking at your medication formulation and packaging. A lot of it is many of the items we talked about before. Medications come in these concentrated, more adult forms. We have to manipulate those forms multiple times to make them appropriate for a pediatric patient. Every type, every part of manipulation puts a patient at risk for something to go wrong. Most healthcare settings really are built around the needs of adults, not pediatric patients. The majority of, in most community hospitals or smaller areas, the majority of patients in those hospitals are adults. They're going to build their processes around them, right? They're not going to build it off of that 12-unit pediatric bed you have, uh, unit you have there, because it doesn't. It's not. It's not common. It doesn't make sense. Unfortunately, the the sickest and the younger the immune the the developing renal and I guess hepatic system, the more sick you are and the smaller you are, the more you are developing, and your ability to tolerate a medication error is much worse in. In a, in a smaller child as opposed to an older child. And of course, do, dosing errors in those children are much more detrimental. So for example, if I gave you, if I gave an older child, let's say a 10-year-old, I gave him 75 milligrams of a, a, a drug called genomycin. That could be a drug that's, that has, uh, that could be toxic to your kidneys. If I gave that to a 10-year-old, and by chance I gave that also to a baby, same dose, right? So it's appropriate dosed in a 10-year-old, but if I give that other that dose to a baby, now we've given almost a 20-fold overdose, which could, in addition to causing nephrotoxicity, it could also put them in complete renal failure. It's that big of a deal. Now, if you and I, I gave I gave that same 75 milligrams to you, well, it's not a it's not a therapeutic dose, but it's not going to hurt you in the same way. So it's much more detrimental in small people. Unfortunately, some of our youngest children. They or sickest children, they can't communicate where they're having problems. You, as an adult patient or even older child, can say, hey, that hurts, or I feel funny, I feel dizzy. A little baby can't tell you that. And so they're at higher risk because of that. And then finally, we have very poor FDA labeling for the pediatric population. Overall, what we, we tend to have actually almost... Only 40% of available drugs out there actually have official pediatric approval labeling by the FDA. What that means is the rest are being, it doesn't mean that they're not being used, and it means we use them with literature and we use it with best practice we can, but it doesn't mean they have large studies. Now, why don't we say, why don't we get studies in everyone, right? Not everyone is raising their hands to put their children in studies, okay? We would like everyone to. Right? But that's not, a common, that's not common. Pediatric studies cost about three to four times more than adult studies. So drug companies, it's not incentivized for them. A lot of times with new drugs that are coming out on the market now, uh, what the FDA will do is they'll actually put some incentives to give them extra bonuses to, to, to conduct these studies in children so we actually do get the data. There's also social morals. Do we test everything in children? Is that the right thing to do? Society doesn't necessarily always think that. So that's just a couple of the reasons of why we don't have all the data or all the FDA data that we want to have in pediatric patients. What are the top 10 pediatric errors? They're really dealing with performance deficits, knowledge deficits, maybe we aren't following the right procedures, miscommunication that can occur, 
We've missed giving a proper prescription. We documented things wrong. There's some distribution system error. We calculated wrong. Something very easy. Tenfold errors of calculation are very easy to do on a calculator. Computer entry wrong. We do everything right, and then we enter it incorrectly into the computer. And then finally, we don't have the right safeguards in the system. So overall, institutions, in order to fight these and to help improve these types of things, they must have multidisciplinary programs that have active participation with nurses, with pharmacists, with physicians, laboratory staff, informatics, all to help improve these systems to avoid these errors. So we're going to end the part of the talk looking at some of the safe medication practices and recommendations that that are out there. So one of the risk reduction risk reduction strategies is dealing with standardizing and identifying medications effectively as well as the processes for drug administration. What they recommend is having a pediatric formulary with policies for drugs, for selecting the correct drugs just for pediatric patients, Um, preventing timing errors. What they're talking about here in standardizing the protocol days, in our chemotherapy protocols, there was two different um, two different ballparks of thought. Some of them started started chemotherapy on day zero and went day zero, one, two, three, four, five. Some of them started day one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They're both the same, but yet if you have some patients who start on day zero, some patients start on day one, you could see how that could get mixed up when you transfer protocols. So they've made a, a recommendation that all chemotherapy protocols that are out there for kids only have one differentiation. Everybody starts from the same nomenclature. We all start with day one as appropriate to to give chemotherapy. They also recommend to limit concentrations and dose strengths. So don't have a ton of different concentrations out there. Limit your concentrations to make things safer. Ensure that your compounded medicines that we have for kids between your inpatients and outpatients are the same. So can you imagine we have an we give in an inpatient setting in the hospital, we give one drug at a certain formulation. Then that patient leaves the hospital, goes, picks up their medicine. It's a totally different strength. Now, can you imagine the parents got really used to giving a teaspoonful worth of this medicine? They think they're going to give a teaspoon of this. They make that mistake because it's a totally different concentration. So you want to make sure as much as possible that your outpatient pharmacies are working with you in a hospital form that we get the same concentrations. Also using oral syringes. So when I said you give a teaspoonful, your teaspoon in your kitchen is very different. You could pull out your teaspoons. There's been variants between four. A teaspoon is officially five mLs, okay, five milliliters. A teaspoon in your kitchen has been shown to be either between four milliliters to almost seven. So as you can imagine, if you just take that nice old that teaspoon and we use it, we could be giving vastly different doses. So it's, what's recommended is to use oral syringes for all medicines. They're very specific and very strong to be able to measure the particular dose. They also recommend to, in, to ensure full pharmacy oversight to verify, dispense, and administer neonatal and pediatric medications. So what they're looking at here is they're trying to say, make sure that you have pediatric-trained people in pediatric facilities. You want someone who's got that expertise to make sure kids are appropriately taken care of. Make sure that everybody's got the right references. Make sure those references are current. You know, make sure you don't have something that's from three years ago as your drug, as your drug information reference. And then finally, orient all those pharmacy staff to specialize neonatal and pediatric services in that organization.
They also recommend to give dose calculation sheets for emergency, uh, emergencies and commonly used medications in ICU patients. The reason why they focus there is in emergent situations or in ICU situations, that's when people are more stressed. If you're trying to give something very quickly and trying to, in a quick process to try to save a patient, you don't want someone going to have to manipulate and calculate a lot of, a lot of calculations because someone will make a mistake. Develop pre-printed order forms that have standardized areas for weight, for allergies. And then finally, uh, creating satellite pharmacies, so small areas that can focus on pediatric-specific medicines and put people with experience in those areas. I'm putting an example here just of a medication sheet. And this is something what they were talking about, an emergency medication sheet. This is just something that you could flip to very quickly. If you're of an 8-kilo patient and we want to give them this drug, you basically look across and you say, oh, I dropped this amount. Okay? That's what they're talking about when you make standardized, order, standardized sheets. They make it very easy for providers so that somebody, a nurse, a doctor, a pharmacist, they can very quickly grab that drug, look at it, and pull up the right amount. Other risk reduction strategies they talk about is using technology correctly. So use methods of technology that measure, that try to use your technology to help you. So don't, don't try to do everything by hand. So there's a lot of great computer programs out there and great systems that help to help uh, measure these items for us. So use them. Use dose, dose range checking software. Limiting certain amount of medicines that can be, that don't have pharmacist overview. So when we actually, all medicines in many areas of the hospital is supposed to have before a doctor, a doctor will order it, a pharmacist has to check it, and then a nurse can pull it out and give it to a patient. There are some areas, like an OR area, like an operating room, where pharmacists don't have to see all those orders right away because of the urgency of the, of the area. So they're, what they're trying to say is limiting the number of medicines in there that can put people at risk. So just keep it to a small number of things that they're very used to using if you're going to have to have something that they have to get into without oversight. Use, use smart pumps. Smart pumps are the new technology out there that allow you to, uh, whatever the concentration of the product that you're giving to a patient, you can, it's already, already plugged into the pump electronically, and then it will automatically know when you connect it up, it'll actually give the right product to the patient. It won't allow someone to program in the incorrect drug or the incorrect rate. And then finally, using barcoding with pediatric capacities, making sure that some of our syringes, so an adult syringe, we might give something out this big. So the barcode could be very big. But in kids, we might be giving a very small amount. So the barcode has to be small. It has to be able to fit on the syringe and be able to read it still. So it's, it has, it, there's, there's more manipulation and more, um, more smaller pieces that we need to make sure that are correct to make sure they work. Medication reconciliation. You guys may have heard of this. This is a, um, a, con a continued recommendation by the Joint Commission. It's talking about when patients come into the hospital, they want to make sure that all the medicines that they have on their list of therapy are communicated properly to, to providers. You want to make sure whatever you come in on, you're going to get on in the hospital. And then when you leave, we talk to you about it, and if there's new medicines, we've corrected your list to be the most current possible. It's a, it's a very big um, requirement, and it's very important for our nurses and pharmacists and doctors to make sure that patients are safe. 
I won't go over each one of these. Each one of these is listed for you there, but it's really talking about how do we make sure when patients come in and when they leave that we've given them exactly the right medications. As additional medic- additional recommendations, it's recommended to weigh patients, and we don't use a lot of times as lay language. We use pounds, right? You're very used to I weigh X amount of pounds. However, in a hospital setting and for pediatric patients, it's recommended only to use kilograms. That's the only the only appropriate um, patient weight. You don't want to mix them up because they're different. And if we by chance dose something off pounds versus kilograms, we could get the wrong the wrong dose to a patient. Use weight-based dosing, as we just talked about. Use pediatric-specific formulations if they're available. And then getting comprehensive training, appropriate training in pediatric patients. And provide enough staff, both, uh, both in all, provi- all professions, to make sure those pediatric patients are taken care of correctly. Clearly differentiate the adult formulations from pediatric formulations. So have them, it's something that we sometimes, we do in the pharmacy. We, we differentiate if this is a, a certain product, it might have a different color, it might have a different lettering, that it help very clearly differentiates what product it is. Um, make sure you talk um, about the medicines. Always talk to the parents. The parents really know those, know the kids best. They are going to be, they're the, other than the nurse who's giving that medicine, the parents who are there are one of the last steps in making sure that that, that, that child gets the right product. And then, of course, getting pharmacists in that have ex- pediatric expertise at all times is it's what's recommended. We also want to look at if we have errors in the system, we want to make sure we, we hear them, we, we see them. So it's recommended that we make a database so that those errors are very easily communicated. We want to make it easy for people to communicate so we can take those errors and develop system approaches to help improve the system. Of course, you know, if we had an error, we want to make sure we have a good process to inform patients and their families. And of course, as we talked about, we didn't have a lot of data in manufacturers for, F- for certain FDA-labeled products, so we want to encourage more of that. Let's get those FDA products, and let's get that research done so we actually have more data in kids. So what are some take-home points that you can go home with to keep your child safe? Know your child's weight, okay? Always read those labels on the medicines. Understand how much to give. Know the concentration and know the dose. So don't come in and say, I give a half a teaspoon of this pink liquid. That is not a good, that is not good, okay? Because no one knows what, they ha- what they're on. Know, the vol- know that concentration and know, what, know the milligrams in dose. So if, say, I'm, gonna, I'm giving 20 milligrams of this to my child. Make sure you know that. Know the active ingredient and concentrations of your child's medicines, Give the correct formulation for an infant or child. There are different types of products out there that say this is the infant kind versus the child kind. Keep with giving the correct product for the right age group. Make sure to talk to your doctor, your nurse, or pharmacist to find out what's safe to mix with your medicines. Not all, not all foods and not all um, other medicines play, play well together. Sometimes it will cause drug interactions. Sometimes it will cause absorption issues. And sometimes it makes that drug just not effective anymore. So we want to make sure that that drug is appropriate and safe for, that, for your child. Keep a list of all medicines. Make sure that prescription ones, make sure that's on the list. Make sure over-the-counters are on the list. Make sure there's herbal things. Those matter too because they can cause drug interactions. They can cause issues with medicines we have in the hospital. 
Use child-resistant caps. It is so easy for kids to get into things. They learn how to twist very, very early. Store them in a safe place. Don't just store them in the bathroom in the in the cabinet. Don't store them right over the sink. It's important. Put them high up. We recommend sometimes put them in a locked container. Put them in a high container on the top of the fridge or in a or in a closed cabinet. Not storing them really in the bathroom. That's not a good choice because if you think you get a lot of moisture in the bathroom, so the all, your shower is always adding moisture in there. That can cause drugs to degrade quickly, more quickly than usual. Keeping them in a kitchen in a in a common in a in a in a uh, temperature controlled area where it's not going to get too warm, not too cold. Use the dosing tool that comes with the medication only for that medicine. Sometimes they're droppers that come with medicines, and people want to use that same dropper for this medicine for this medicine. They are not calibrated for the other medicine. They're made for one medicine. Only use it for that medicine. That's going to be better for your child. Know the difference between a teaspoon and a tablespoon, okay? And really, an oral syringe I'd really advocate for because an oral syringe is much safer to use than ever using a household teaspoon or tablespoon. And then especially know those concentrations. What really we're hoping, we're actually trying to work with our families now is because it's hard to carry all that stuff. You know, you know sometimes you have uh, families that have a bunch of liquids. They don't want to carry them with them, and they're, they have to keep them refrigerated. What we recommend they do is actually, everyone, a lot of people have phones with, with cameras on them. We, what we recommend is you take a picture of your, of your medicine and have it on your phone so you can show it to your doctor when they come in. Here's my medicine, because it's hard to remember what are all those numbers. Sometimes you look, you're like, ah, oh, that's a 5, that's a 20. What am I really getting? But take a picture. They're going to be able to help you on that. And bring that all along to the doctor visit. If you can, if you have a typed up list, that's great. We love, we love to see that. Bring that along. And that's always going to help in knowing what medicines that your child gets. With that, let's see if anyone has any other questions. So the question is, how do we determine osmolality, um, osmolarity of these, of these products? Miliosms is the terminology of MOSM. Um, that's the shorthand term for miliosms. Um, it's not something you can just do on the, on the side. Um, they're actually printed up for the different products. So it's in a reference, uh, reference books. Um, and it'll say this is going to be at, we'll say 600. This is at 400. Um, and if something is super hyperosmolar, we may need to dilute it properly. Now, the one benefit of a lot of things is that once you get bigger, you know, you have more room in your stomach, and we can dilute it out with things, too. So you might be able to take it. If you're taking that and you drink a little bit of milk, we'll say, if that's okay with it, now you've suddenly diluted it quite a bit. But it's really the little guys, the little neonates, where they have such a small stomach, and now we're giving them a big amount of medicine that's very hyperosmolar, and it could be a problem. Got the labeling. So the question is dealing with how do we deal with the drugs that are not FDA approved? Um, it's actually a little closer to 40%, but still, that's 60% of drugs still, right? That's a lot of drugs we give. So how do we actually do this in real life? So when I'm telling you we have literature, so a lot of times we have studies either that, we, that have been done. Um, they're either very, sometimes we have randomized controlled trials if we're lucky. Sometimes it could be down to case reports. Um, it's a variance. Sometimes we have some much stronger data, and sometimes less less strong data that you have to that you have to extrapolate properly. Um, it's a clinical judgment call on some cases, um, and sometimes it's not going to be very clear cut. 
often we have we have some pediatric drug references that have pretty strong dosing information that is not FDA that's not officially FDA labeled, which gives us most of our dosing information. But a lot of times we need to go to the tertiary literature. And, and we have to pull up studies and make sure that they're applicable. So you pull up a study, you look, is this match my patient? Is it kind of match my patient? And then how much does it match and how much applicability is there and how much does it match as an age in, that we can say? Does that teenager, is that study in the teenager good for a two-year-old? No, probably not, right? It would be only good for maybe a 12-year-old or a 10-year-old. So we need to clinically look at each one of those to to say what's appropriate. All right. Well, thank you, guys. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.